left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I think humans are driven to want to help other humans. And it is up to us to come from a place of curiosity, come from a place of a lack of judgment, come from a place of service. And for most people, it's not, I need you to pay me for my time or those sorts of things. It's people want to help other people. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, Group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Elaine Stagerberg. She's a psychiatrist, a mother of four, and owner of Black Swan Real Estate. She owns and manages a portfolio of over $250 million in assets under management. Elaine, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm excited. I am too. And the first thing we always do is want to hear your journey. How did you get into real estate? And then once you got into real estate, I think you started with single family homes. How did you then grow into multifamily and now you're a syndicator? Can you just talk about your story? Absolutely. Absolutely. I consider my journey into real estate as one of the greatest blessings of my life and really a very unexpected part of my life. So as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist. Early on, I made the decision to go to medical school and residency, everything that that career path entails. My husband was a career technologist. So we both had really lovely careers with high income potential, high prestige, everything you can kind of hope for, for like a typical American career. But luckily, early in our 20s, even before we met each other, we both sought out mentors who we perceived to be doing well with their lives and asked them, what has worked really well for you? And I had the great fortune working as a nanny for a family who it looked like they were making their wealth from running a medical clinic. But when I asked them, how have you created your wealth? They told me real estate. 
And my husband, completely separately from me before we had ever met, was doing some minor IT like consultancy for people on the side where he would help people manage like their emails and passwords, those sorts of things, like lawyers, accountants. And he would ask them, how have you created your wealth? And one might think, well, they're an attorney or an accountant. They're making money from those professions. And they would tell him, I'm taking the money I'm making from law or whatever my profession is, and I'm shunting it into a rental portfolio. So he and I met and we shared those experiences. And we said, huh, that's really interesting that we both have had these experiences looking at people that we admire and respect that are further along in their lives. And there's this real estate thing that continues to come up. So when we got married, we both owned our own homes. We moved into his home and we decided to rent out my home. And even with that background of those folks who were further ahead of us, and I knew that we wanted to do real estate, I will totally admit that at that time, I was so afraid of doing rental real estate. I really wanted to sell that house. We had just gotten married. I had just left my career so that I could start medical school. I was hoping a baby would come along. This was in 2011 when the economy was terrible and there was just a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I thought this is the worst time for us to start real estate investing. I was so focused on risk and loss and debt. And I'm so glad that my husband, Nick, convinced me to hold that home and to rent it out. That really started our journey. I was able to see that we had great renters in that home. We were getting a little bit of cash flow. The mortgage was getting paid down every month. The property value was improving as the economy improved over those years. And so then we really decided to set aside fear, set aside concern for loss, and really become real estate investors. I count that first property as kind of being an accidental landlord. So we saved up as much money as we could. We bought a home that was a VA foreclosure. It had been vacant for nine years. Any assumptions you can make about the status of the property, you know, just hearing those couple of pieces of data are probably true. We hired professionals for things like the plumbing, the roof, the windows, the HVAC, things that we needed license and permits for. But we did most of that renovation ourselves with sweat equity, put a lot of the renovations on credit cards. A lot of the sweat equity we did because we couldn't afford to hire handy people and painters and those sorts of things. But I really look back at that project even though, I mean, when I talk about it, like my knees hurt thinking about laying the tile for weeks on end and my back hurts thinking about painting that entire house. But it was so much fun. And I'm so glad that we did the labor ourselves because we saw with our own eyes the value creation. We saw one minute this was a house that had been abandoned essentially for nine years. And a month later, it was a house that a family with three children moved into. The neighbors like we're just stopping by all the time and thanking us for getting the boards off the windows and putting a roof on the house and just doing everything to make it so that they had a nice neighborhood to live in. And that was really when we got bit by the real estate bug. Every deal we've ever done to date has been a Burr business model. So we acquire with cash, we renovate with cash, rent it, refinance, repeat. I call it an equity snowball to get to where we are today from those humble beginnings. We basically shunted all of our excess cash from our earnings into real estate, really believed that if we chose to live lean for a number of years, that that would have a fantastic payoff in the future. Luckily, today I'm getting to live that future. Decided to funnel all of our profits from our real estate back into more real estate. We never took profit from any of our investments for about 10 years. And then we started working with passive investors. First, we did joint ventures. My husband got a real estate license. We created a property management company. Then we started doing our private equity funds. Kind of one thing led to 
another. And today we both run our company full-time. We're vertically integrated. We raise our own capital. We acquire our own deals. We do our own renovations. We have a property management company and we get to do this full-time every single day. We get to work together, which is a lot of fun, has a lot of challenges as well, but it's just really an interesting life and very different than what if you had asked me 12 years ago when I was choosing to go to medical school and Nick was building his career in technology, would I one day be a full-time real estate investor? I never could have imagined that. And now we get to spend our time serving passive investors and sharing this business model with as many people as possible. That's great. It's such a good story. And I find it interesting. So you started out similar to me as an accidental landlord. That's what I call it when we couldn't sell our house in 2008. And if you would have asked me then if I would be in full-time real estate, I would have thought you were crazy because I hated being a landlord. What happens is you recognize what being a landlord can result in. You might not like the landlording part, but the cash and what it does to your finances, pretty amazing. And then also going from being a doctor to being full-time real estate, there's a few other people who have made that journey as well. So that's always interesting to me. But one thing that really stuck out about your story is how did you know, or how did you get the courage, I guess, as a nanny to have the conversation with the people you worked for about their wealth? Because I think sometimes people are so afraid to say, hey, I see that you've built up some wealth here. How did you get there? And most people assume it's their W-2, but then you and your husband, both you peel back the layers and most wealthy people didn't get there from a W-2. They got their owning a business or owning real estate. So that's a roundabout way of me asking, like, how did you figure out this is the question I need to ask? That's an excellent question. And I think not only does it apply to that particular situation when I was asked the family that I worked for, but I think it applies to today to who I am today of right now, I want to get to a billion dollars in assets under management. How do I do that? Well, I find people who are there and I ask them really good questions, high quality questions. And I think humans are driven to want to help other humans. And it is up to us to come from a place of curiosity, come from a place of a lack of judgment, come from a place of service. I would love to have the opportunity to ask you a few questions. Here's how it could really impact my life. Is there anything I could do for you to thank you for your time? And for most people, it's not, I need you to pay me for my time or those sorts of things. It's people want to help other people. People want to pass on their legacy. And I think one of the biggest things that I have learned as an entrepreneur is come from curiosity. I take that right from Gary Keller. So we hold our real estate license at Keller Williams, really love the culture here. I think Gary is an amazing visionary, a real estate leader, and he has a lot of really pithy phrases and things that he says about entrepreneurship. And one of them is come from curiosity. And I think when we do that with ourselves, asking ourselves, why do I feel this way? Why do I want to make this decision? Why do I not want to make this decision? And then certainly with others, what have the successes been in your life? What have the hardships been? If you could give yourself a piece of advice from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, what would you say to yourself? And then just being genuinely curious, staying out of judgment, thanking people for their time, offering value where you can. And just remembering that it's all part of that loop, right? So at times we are going to people who are further in the journey than us and asking them, hey, what does the path look like up ahead? At times we're with our peers and we're saying, hey, what are you seeing day to day right now? And at times we're the ones reaching back to people who are a little further behind us in the journey and saying, hey, come along. Here's a path you can take. Here's a a tip I can give you. And that journey, we're all on it together. And the more we can remember that we're on that journey together, I think the better off we all are. Yeah, that's really 
really well said. Now, you mentioned a few things in there that maybe leads me to believe that you still use a little bit of your psychiatry degree, I guess. One of the questions that people always want to know is, what's the best way to vet a sponsor? And my question is, how would you recommend someone vet an operator? But also, do you use your background in psychiatry to kind of help with that vetting partners, not just a sponsor, but maybe other partners and people that you work with? So psychiatry is so much, it's a personality, right? It's a training that becomes a part of someone. And I never envisioned that I would have a career outside of medicine. But as I was choosing my specialty in medicine, I really asked myself, what is something that will serve me outside of medicine, right? Like if I become a surgeon, I'm probably not just going to operate on nights and weekends in my spare time. If I become an internal medicine doctor, so those are people that take care of like the heart and the lungs and the kidneys, that's pretty valuable information, but it mostly deals with medications at the pharmacy. Psychiatry is something that you carry with you all day, every day. There's obviously a lot of medications as well. That's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is that a psychiatrist can prescribe medications, but a lot of psychiatry is about mindset and thinking and helping people make sense of their story. And then I really supplemented that in the coaching world. So I took what I learned professionally and then really amplified it with mindset work from the greats like Tony Robbins, we're in his platinum partnership and go to an event almost every month, other great programs and courses out there, great thought leaders. And so it's just a way of thinking. But to get to your question on how to vet a sponsor, I think I have a very qualitative way of thinking about that. And it's very relationship-based, which probably comes from my background in psychiatry. Someone can underwrite a deal and they can look at rents and comps and purchase price and interest rate and all of those things. So that would be betting on the horse, so to speak. Or someone can vet the sponsor or better, the operator, if they're able to work with someone that's an operator directly. And that's betting on the jockey. And I really think that that's the way to go of asking oneself, is this a person who will fight for my capital? Is this a person who will make good decisions on my behalf? Is this a person who, when there's trouble ahead, and there will be in every deal, there's always trouble. That's part of real estate investing. That's where the value comes from. Is this a person that will make good decisions under pressure and weather those storms? Someone can make a spreadsheet, say anything they want with cap rates and interest rates and even bumping rent, 10 or $20 per unit can really change things on a pro forma, but really ask asking oneself, is this an operator who will steward my capital as though it is their own? Building that relationship, I'm big on meeting people face-to-face. We have an in-person event once a year where people can come and meet us, tour our assets, really get to know us, really get to build that relationship. And so that analogy of does one bet on the horse or does one bet on the jockey? I think people should focus 95% of their efforts on betting on the jockey. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I agree with that 100%. You really need to make sure the person or company that you're dealing with is top notch and get comfortable with them because then any deals that they bring you, you can assume at least that they're thought it through, right? You're dealing with a quality person, so they're not going to bring you a crappy deal. So I think that's great. You also mentioned that you do your own property management. And I do want to get into your fund because it's very different. But can you talk first about why you decided to do your own property management. When I was an active investor, I hired property managers and all but one of them was horrible. (laughs) I think you just answered my question for me there. That might be why. (laughs) But I know that property management is the thankless, difficult job. So you answer the question, why did you do it? Probably because you couldn't find anybody else to do it. But how do you integrate that into everything else? And how do you become the property manager that you would want a third party 
property manager to be? Yeah, excellent question. So way back in the beginning, we decided to self-manage. I think that was an easy stepping stone because that very first property I had lived in, and it was also a relatively new house. It was about three years old. It was easy to make the decision to self-manage that property. And then that first big renovation project, we just decided to keep self-managing. We really liked self-managing because we're big believers in an ownership mentality that we would steward that asset the best because we are the owners of that asset. And say a $25 rent bump probably doesn't matter much to a property manager, but that could be like, say, an eighth of our cash flow. If our cash flow is, say, $200 per month, that extra $25 is an extra eighth of cash flow per month. When we got to about 25 properties, that's when it was becoming very challenging for us to self-manage our properties. There was always a maintenance ticket. There was always a property that needed to be turned over and all of the things that go into that. And so we had to make the really tough decision. Do we hire third-party property management or do we create our own property management company and all that entails with hiring employees, training them, making sure we're in compliance with fair housing, Department of Commerce. It's different for every state, but there's certainly a lot of regulation around a property management company. And we are really big believers that operations are everything. Operations are where almost all of the value is created. And the best person to do the operations is the owner. And so we created our own property management company. My husband got a real estate license. We're brokered by Keller Williams. We're able to have our property management company here. And that really allowed us to scale because then we were able to offer third-party property management. And we had a very different model for that as well. We no longer offer third-party property management. But when we did, we only did third-party property management of homes that we helped that investor acquire and renovate because we have a very consistent product. All of our homes are pet-friendly, no carpet, the same light fixtures and doorknobs, paint schemes, upgraded bathrooms and kitchens so that as our leasing team is leasing them, let's say someone looks at a certain house and maybe the person doesn't like the layout of the bedrooms or something. We can say, well, we have these other five options and they're basically the same. They're just in different neighborhoods, different sizes. And that is really what allowed us to scale single family. So we have about 400 single family homes that we either own or manage. And people will say, well, single family is not scalable. And I think that's not true if you come at it from an operations perspective. So we really run our single family home portfolio as though it is an apartment community that just happens to be spread out. So all of the same fixtures and everything that I mentioned. And then that also allowed us to then have great projections as we moved into our joint ventures and our private equity fund offerings, because we are the manager. We're the asset manager and the property manager, and we do our own construction. So when we say things like we anticipate that this renovation might be 15000 per unit, or we anticipate that the rental rate might be $12.50 per unit, it's because we are talking directly to our construction managers, directly to our leasing team. And we've trained our property management team with that ownership mentality so that they understand how critical it is for that last $25 in rent or for managing that maintenance ticket the most efficient way or for providing a level of customer service that decreases vacancy and increases renewal rates. And so much so that 5% of all of our profits from our private equity funds, from our stake, not from our limited partners, goes to a profit share to our property managers, to our property management company, because we want them to have the feeling when they walk into a building, I own a piece of this. 
I'm going to make sure that I have a smile on my face for that lease showing. I'm going to pick up that piece of trash. I'm going to do that maintenance ticket at five after five on a Friday afternoon because it's the right thing to do. And it's all about that ownership mentality. So one of our seven core values at Black Swan Real Estate is extreme ownership. And that vertical integration of property management is a big part of that. Madison Investing is on a mission to democratize passive investing and make private real estate syndications and funds accessible to all accredited investors. To do so, Madison Investing developed Blueprint, a seven-part course that educates investors on how to develop an effective passive real estate investment strategy. Learn how syndications and funds offer investors a way to own a part of multifamily properties, self-storage businesses, and other asset classes with limited liability and potential for regular distributions while achieving strong ROI. For a limited time, Madison Investing is offering our listeners blueprint for free at madisoninvesting.com slash blueprint. Madison Investing CEO Spencer Hillegas is a registered representative of Finalis Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Investing in real estate while capable of producing attractive returns entails a high degree of risk, including illiquidity of the investment and loss of principal. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily, or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's great. So I want to dig into your fund now, because from what I understand, you have some single family homes, some multifamily in there, and that's very unusual, right? There aren't a whole lot of syndicators that are dealing with single family homes and certainly not mixed with multifamily, at least not that I've seen. So can you talk about what's in the fund and why you have those two kind of similar but very different asset classes in there? Yeah, so we have Black Swan Real Estate Fund 1 and Black Swan Real Estate Fund 2. Both of those are closed now for new capital, but you're absolutely right. They both have single family homes and then large multifamily as well. Our overall portfolio is about a third of a billion in assets under management, about a thousand units. And we really like single family because they're easy to acquire, they're easy to renovate, and they're little money machines. We can work with local regional banks to do a cash out refi very quickly to speed up the velocity of capital so that as we're doing larger scale renovations on large apartment buildings, that's a slower moving target. And so we have these money machines on the side kind of churning the capital while we're doing the larger renovations. Our funds are very different from kind of a typical model in that they're all predicated on a Burr business model. So we've never sold a single asset that we've ever acquired. We have no fees whatsoever in our private equity funds. 100% of all of our profits go back to our investors until they're completely repaid. So it could be years before we as GPs have any profit whatsoever from our funds. And then after our limited partners are completely repaid, they have all of their capital back, they stay in the deal indefinitely. There's no capital event that gets our partners out of the deal. We really think that if partners are in the deal during the risky part, during that renovation phase, that they should stay in the deal forever. 
that creates an infinite rate of return. It's an indefinite hold. We tell people to plan for like a 20 to 25 year hold period on our funds. It's really just based on our age and lifespan. Ideally, we'd hold those funds as long as possible because we're enjoying an infinite rate of return together. And then there's also very significant tax advantages as well because there's no sale, there's no depreciation recapture. And we do all of that through deep value add. We love that Burr business model through a cash out refi and then through relevering the assets as they age. So some of our original assets that we've had like 10 or 12 years now, we're on like the third or fourth generation of cash out refi. So we can look at like a single piece of property and remember like that bucket of capital paid for that property. Then we refied it out and used that capital to buy the next property and then the next property and the next property. And so we've just taken that business model and applied it to our private equity funds. Investors love it because it creates true passive income for decades. It creates true generational wealth. It's not just a three or five year vehicle for wealth creation. It's a decades long vehicle for wealth creation. And then there's huge tax advantages as well, because all cash out refi proceeds are completely tax neutral to the IRS. And then, of course, there's no depreciation recapture. And then we really hope that our big goal now is really in the private equity world, maybe have a small impact on, on private equity to change private equity, no fees. So our limited partners are placed well ahead of us and their interests, 100% of capital going back to our partners before we get any splits whatsoever. It's really making it an investor-focused model. I take that straight from the Mayo Clinic, where I trained as a psychiatrist. Mayo's model is the needs of the patient come first. And I basically just when you're steeped in that culture for years and years and years, as we were creating our private equity funds, it was just so apparent to me, the needs of the investor come first, and then everything else will work itself out. So we have a very different model that sometimes can be a little hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around. Like, what do you mean no fees? Well, our property management company generates fees, and that pays for our salaries, for our staff, and for everything else. So we don't need to take fees at the asset management level. What do you mean an indefinite hold? I don't want my money locked up forever. Well, you have all your capital back. You have zero dollars left in the fund and you just you stay in it in an indefinite hold. But once it clicks for people, like there's just this moment where I can either see it in their eyes if I'm with them in person or I can hear it in their voice over the phone where it clicks and they're like, wow, this is so interesting. I wish other operators had a model like this. And it's our hope that other operators will listen and steal our business model and that more properties are held indefinitely because there's that ownership mentality that comes when you hold and steward an asset for a long time. Yeah, that's super interesting. I want to dig into the part about the sponsor fees, just because I did look at your website and 10% at closing, right? And then 10% property management fee. Can you talk about how those relate? Because what I'm trying to do is you have a different model. So if I'm looking at your model compared to somebody else's who's doing the normal private equity where there's sharing and there's a pref and all that, how do I compare yours? Because your PM fee is a little bit higher than a normal one and that's fine. And then the 10% at closing, what is that of and how does that factor? I guess what I'm trying to figure out is if I was looking at your deal and somebody else's and their standard and you're not, and let's say the property's returned the exact same amount. What are the net LP returns? Have you done that comparison? Or can you talk also just about those other fees there? Yeah, so there's no fee at closing. So I'm curious what you're seeing there. We are vertically integrated. So Nick is a licensed real estate agent. And if he represents us in the transaction, he may collect a broker fee. That might be what you're referring to there. That's only if he represents us. So it's a fee that would go to any of the buyer brokers. And again, it's all about vertical integration and control. So we really love that he's able to negotiate for us. He's the decision maker. And if that happens and he's able to collect a buyer broker fee, then that happens. And then on the property management side, our 
pricing model is very transparent. So it looks like it's higher than a typical property management fee, but that's because it's an all-in model. So we collect 10% of gross rents collected and nothing else. So a typical property management model might be, say, 3 or 5%, maybe 6% on the high side, but then they also pass through salaries, health insurance, mileage, cell phones, copy machines, paper, all of those expenses. In general, when we look at seller pro formas compared to our post-closing pro formas, we're generally reducing property management by at least 30% and often 50%. And if you think about it from a wealth generating perspective, every dollar that we generate in our property management company, great. That goes to pay salaries, to do all of the things that we need to be able to operate a property management company to run our assets. But every dollar that we reduce the NOI of that building, if we assume that the cap rate is 5%, then that's a 20x multiple that we're removing in value. So we're very incentivized to keep the NOI of the buildings as high as possible so that we can get to a cash out refi so that we can get to an indefinite hold period and have that infinite rate of return. So we do everything we can to run our property management company as lean as possible to keep the assets as well capitalized as possible, keep their NOI high to keep their value high. So we tend to decrease property management expenses considerably compared to seller pro formas. And then I hope I addressed that question about if Nick is able to represent us as a buyer broker, that he would collect a commission, but there's no 10% fee at closing. I want to be very clear about that. That's a pretty big deviation from our business model. And I don't want anyone to leave with that idea. Yeah. And I'm not trying to plant anything in anybody's head or play the gotcha game. I just was looking on your website, the fact questions, frequently asked questions. The last thing it says is about your fees. It says, in addition, we collect 10% at closing to cover costs. I think that's what I was referencing. I'll have to take a look at that and see kind of what that is. There's no fee at closing. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and again, like I said, I'm not trying to cause trouble here. I just want to really understand because it is such a different model than what everybody else is doing. You did a great job of explaining that. And so it would seem to me that if you had a property and the exact same property was with another operator, that the LP returns might look a little bit better on yours because of the fee structure and the things you do. And so that's really what I was hoping to get at. So that makes sense. Elaine and I talked after recording and it was a typo on her website. So I can confirm that there is no 10% closing fee. As she said, it was just a typo on the website. So back to the podcast. So now I want to switch it and talk about the markets you're in because you're not in the markets everybody's in, which is something that I kind of like. You're also in three markets, it looks like, that don't have much to do with each other, right? Rochester, Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and Tacoma, Washington. So you're living in Rochester, I think. So I get that, but I don't get the other two. So could you talk about why Rochester and then also why you're in Oklahoma City and Tacoma? So Oklahoma City is the easy one. That's where Nick and I lived when we first rented out the home that I lived in and then the rental property that we had there. We have a couple of single family homes in Oklahoma City, but we're not active in Oklahoma City. And then Rochester, Minnesota is where we live and operate now. And we love Rochester because exactly as you mentioned, it is not a market that is saturated with other people who are are buying and renovating assets here. So it's a blue ocean, if you're familiar with blue ocean strategy. We also love Rochester because it's consistently rated one of the best places to live in the country, like going back to the early 90s. So it has a great culture, a great basis. Mayo Clinic is a huge, strong employer here, IBM, other employers. But then to really understand Rochester, one has to understand the Destination Medical Center, the DMC initiative. You can find their website, dmc.mn. It's a really fantastic exposition 
coalition of public-private partnerships. So it's the largest ever public-private partnership in the state of Minnesota and the largest per capita spend on infrastructure anywhere in the country that's seeking to grow the population of Rochester to grow the employment base for Mayo Clinic so that Rochester can be the destination medical center of the world, bringing in tons of jobs in like biotech, technology itself, startups, anything that's related to healthcare, to well-being. Rochester is definitely the hub for that in the whole country and in the whole world. Mayo Clinic is consistently rated the best hospital in the entire world. It's a really special place, a really special culture. And so because of that, real estate values are strong. We're still able to get cash flow. We're still able to buy buildings that are old enough to allow for significant renovations, which is part of our value add strategy. And then we're able to have market appreciation as well. So it's really this blend of kind of the perfect metrics to have success all along the different parts of the value chain of any given transaction. And then Tacoma is very similar. So Tacoma is to Seattle as Rochester is to Minneapolis. So it's a smaller town connected to a great major metro area. Again, not an area where there are a lot of investors or a lot of capital flowing into that area from real estate investors, but Tacoma is undergoing a major revitalization. So in say the 80s and even the 90s, it was very much an industrial blue collar town kind of associated with pollution and dirty, gritty is the word that locals will use there. And that has really changed changed over the last like decade or so as the EPA has cleaned up the Puget Sound, as there's been redevelopment there. There's a billion dollar real estate development, Ruston Point, right on the Puget Sound, about a mile or so from two of our communities there in Tacoma. And so Tacoma is an opportunity for us to buy class C and even like class D plus assets that really have been neglected for decades through kind of this low period in Tacoma's history. And renovate them to the Tacoma of today that is really a vibrant place to live. People live there and commute into Seattle or now with remote work, just live there because it's less congested, it's less expensive, there's more kind of to do outside of Seattle proper. And so that's why we love Tacoma. Coincidentally, they're both on the 44th North Parallel. That's a complete (laughs) coincidence. And I didn't know about that until we had been investing in Tacoma for several years. But that was sort of a nod from the universe of, hey, these cities kind of belong together, which is really quite extraordinary if you think about like Rochester is a pretty small town so that it would hit the 44th North Parallel, like kind of what are the chances of that? And then you'll notice that we're in a very small number of markets. So really just Rochester and Tacoma. Again, Oklahoma City is more of just kind of a legacy because that's where we live. We're not actively doing projects there. We're big believers in becoming experts in our communities of really having large market share, knowing every single street, knowing all of the players in that market, really being thought of from brokers and other sellers as the people that are buying, really being thought of as residents that are living there as the place to go for wanting a place to live. We have a much smaller footprint in Tacoma than we do in Rochester, but we're building our footprint there in Tacoma. And we're just big believers in having a small area of expertise that we can dominate rather than having a few investments in a number of markets, but we're never an expert in any of those markets. Yeah, those are great explanations for the markets you're in. So when an investor is looking at your fund and it's got the single family and the multifamily in it, how do you analyze that and figure out 
is this the right investment for me? And then what's the split in the typical fund? I know you have two and they're both closed now, but what typically is the split between how much single family do you have and how much multifamily do you have? So each fund varies considerably. And I really think about if anyone has ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, he talks about big rocks and then little rocks. He's talking about that in terms of time management or priorities. But I think that that's a really great analogy for how we fill our funds. So basically, Stephen says, if you have a jar, and you have a handful of big rocks and then a handful of, let's call them pebbles. If you put your pebbles in first, then you might not be able to fit your big rocks in. They're not going to fit in and come out over the top of the jar. But if you put your big rocks in, then you spill the pebbles in on top. This pebbles fill in to the bottom of the jar, all of the little cracks and crevices. And so that's how we build our private equity funds. So first we do all of the large multifamily acquisitions that also helps from getting lending with banks. So if there's a lot of single families, banks just get a little overwhelmed at the balance sheets and everything. It's much easier for them to assess when there's just a small number of large multifamily projects in any given fund. And then as those large multifamilies stabilize, then we fill in the pebbles with single family homes. Because going back to earlier in the conversation, they're just like little money machines. They're just ways to place capital very quickly. We can go from seeing a property to closing on it in like seven days. We can renovate it in another, say, two weeks. We can have the capital out, say, 30 days after that. So from finding a property, placing the capital, getting the capital out can be as little as, say, eight or 12 weeks. And that helps to speed up the overall velocity of capital. So fund one has about 40 single family homes. Fund two doesn't have any single family homes yet, but I anticipate it will probably have maybe 100 or so by the time we spent all the capital in fund two. And then one of the things that wasn't part of this question, but is really important part of our business model that kind of came up as I was describing that is all of our debt is with local and regional banks. So we haven't worked with institutional players at all. We haven't worked with debt funds, Fannie, Freddie. We really believe in relationship-based banking. All of our debt is fixed rate debt. We sign full recourse. That's something Nick and I do. Obviously, none of our partners sign recourse, but we sign recourse so that we can get a better interest rate, better terms. And it's all from local regional banks where there's a real partnership there and they're invested in the community the same way we are. And it's much more collaborative. We're able to get better interest rate, better terms, lower origination. It's kind of all of the levers in debt, but it's very different. Most people with a portfolio of our size are not working with regional banks. Maybe they did many, many years ago, but they kind of left that behind. And we've just continued to find ways to keep growing our relationships with regional banks, even as we've scaled the portfolio. And that I just kind of brought that up because I was thinking about underwriting. That's why we put the single family homes in last, because I think it would be quite overwhelming for them to underwrite the fund as a whole, it's much easier if we say, hey, there's five apartment buildings in this fund versus, hey, there's five apartment buildings and 75 single family homes. So we save those till the end and kind of go with that Stephen Covey model of putting the big rocks in first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I was going to ask about the debt. And that's super interesting. I mean, everything that you guys are doing is similar to what the industry does, but you tweak it a little bit to make it your own. The way you're not having the fees, you're vertically integrated, you start your own property management, and then how you do the debt. It's just super interesting. And I really like the idea of focusing on just a couple of markets because that's really how you get the expertise. And now you're not competing against all, everyone's in Dallas, everyone's in Phoenix. So it seems like I'm sure there's competition in those markets, but maybe it's less so than typical market. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So the last question I always ask is what is a great podcast that you listen to? And you can give us a couple if you want. 
So the one that comes to mind is Real Estate Espresso by Victor Minosh. I listen to that almost every day. I highly recommend it to anyone. It's quick. It's like five or six minutes. It's very different than kind of what we've put together here where it's conversational. We're both going back and forth. I don't know if he scripts it or not. I don't know, you know kind of what his style is, but it, it sounds very intentional. He starts with a sentence, an exposition. He gives a few pieces of data to support that, does a conclusion that with really complex, deep, topics. He's not just skimming the surface. He's really getting deep into Fed policy, interest rates, market share, all of the very important things that are happening both at the microeconomic level and the macroeconomic level. He's a skilled operator himself, puts together amazing deals. And the thing that I love about it is it can be hard for any of us to find hours to dedicate to our personal growth. I highly recommend that everyone do that. And I highly recommend that everyone prioritize personal growth first above everything else in life. But we know that's hard. Victor's podcast, is five or six minutes. So even just five or six minutes a day, listening to that for a few weeks, someone will have a much deeper understanding of real estate investing. That's a great recommendation. And I listen to everything on uh, double time. So it'll only take me two and a half minutes. That's even less There you go. (laughs) There you go. Awesome. So some of his podcasts are so good. I will listen to them like four or five times. So I'm spending the same amount of time listening to, say, a longer form podcast like this one. But they're so intense. He packs so much into just a few sentences that on that third or fourth time through, it finally clicks of like, oh, that's the message he's trying to get across here. I used to listen to that. Somehow, I think I got a new podcast player and that dropped off. So I'll definitely add that back to my list. So what's the way listeners can get in touch with you if they want to connect the best way? Our website is meetblackswan.com, meetblackswan.com. That has a link to our calendars, our newsletter, our Facebook group, lots of different ways to get in touch with us. We also have a monthly live Zoom call that we do with our audience where we teach on a particular topic. Like this month, we're doing commercial lending to teach people how to scale their portfolios with commercial lending. We love to give and serve and teach. So we do that once a month. We have our Facebook group. That's a great way to stay in touch. And then we keep our calendars available. So if anyone wants to block a time with either my husband or I, they can find our calendars there. Meetblackswan.com. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. And thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Zach Kapstenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities Multifamily Investments, Schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us LFI. That was 
very interesting conversation with Elaine. I like some of the mindset stuff that she talked about. You set aside fear and you just got to get started. And that's something whether you're, you know, hear that all over bigger pockets, take action for active real estate investors, but it's the same for passive real estate investors. You have to deal with your fear and understand and dig in. And if you're listening to this podcast and others, you're getting the education you need. But then once you've done that, at some point, you just have to get started. And also her view on mentors and things like that is is humans want to help humans. So don't be afraid to ask somebody, hey, I noticed that you're doing well. You seem to be financially free or whatever it is. And ask them, hey, how did you get there? Because it doesn't seem like you can get there just by uh, having a good W-2 or whatever it is. So I think those questions are good ones to ask. You just have to have the courage to ask them. And certainly you have to ask them in a tactful way. And their model, the Burr model, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, I think I get them out of order. But the point of it is, and she said it, it's an equity snowball. So you get that going and she said they've refied some of the properties three and four times. And that means you're getting that capital back and back and back. And then you're into infinite returns. I love that model. And the other thing that she mentioned, and this we're trying to focus on there, so not focus on it, but understand this, is that there's always trouble ahead in every deal. You're going to have hiccups in every deal. A lot of deals right now may be invested in the last couple of years that the debt is causing problems, interest rates causing problems. And that's part of real estate. The deals we're getting into now, there's going to be problems with those deals. And that's why we concentrate on the operator and find the top quality operator so that they can deal with those problems. But you're not going to have a bunch of investments in real estate or anything really and not have obstacles to overcome and not have problems and troubles. And I think it's constructive to have somebody who acknowledges that right out of the gates to say, hey, we're going to do our best, but there's going to be problems. And when they happen, we're going to tackle them. So I love that attitude. And it's just a unique business model that they have. The infinite rate of returns, the sharing profits with the property manager, even though it's vertically integrated, the property manager and their employees knowing that the better job they do, they're going to get an actual share in the profits of the business. I think that's brilliant. So yeah, I think it's fine to operate differently. It works for them and it's a very unique model and it's something definitely to keep track of. So we'll do that and keep an eye on them. And if they have a new fund, we'll evaluate that and see if we want to take the leap. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.